0: Well, thank you for coming out on this drizzly, chilly Sunday morning. Wonderful to be with the saints on the Lord's day. The earliest prayer I remember learning is one I said most nights at bedtime. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, many of you were probably taught a, meal to, a prayer to say at mealtimes, either more formal Lord, for what we are about to receive, make us truly thankful, or perhaps a little less formal, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food, or for those of more, even less formal, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. (laughs) Pete, I knew that was your heritage. (laughs) Many of you have memorized the so-called serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can The wisdom to know the difference or maybe some of y'all relate more to Calvin's version of this that he said to Hobbes grant me the strength to change what I can the inability to accept what I can't and the incapacity to tell the difference (laughs) but far and away the most well-known prayer is the one that our Lord Jesus taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount for many this is something you pray daily Uh, for many this may well be the final prayer that we pray before we pass But this is a prayer that we are commanded to pray and expected to pray daily. Last week we talked in the context of Jesus teaching on hypocrisy how we are not to do our righteousness to be noticed by men but rather to be observed in secret to please and honor God. So when we give alms to the poor we do so in a way that doesn't draw attention to ourselves but merely blesses those around us and honors our Lord who gives us all things to give to others. In our fasting, we don't draw attention to ourselves by neglecting our appearance, but we keep it secret. And our Lord who sees in secret will honor the sacrifices we make on his behalf. And then in our prayers, he warned us in our motives to not stand in the public streets or to stand in a synagogue and to pray in such a way as to draw attention to ourselves. The motive of our prayer is simply to communicate with our God. And then in the manner of our prayer, We're not to simply give by rote meaningless repetitions like the Gentiles do because our Lord knows in advance what we need. And having discussed our motives and the manner of our prayer, Jesus now gives a model prayer for us. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, where today we get to listen in on our Lord as He teaches us, His disciples, how to pray. It's going to have three main parts An initial command and address, followed by three requests about God, His glory, His kingdom, and His will. And then three requests for our family, for God's provision, His pardon, and His protection. Look at verse 9. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Now the command is pray in this way, not exactly with these words. So He's not just giving us a script to recite or something to memorize and repeat by rote. There's nothing wrong with doing that as long as our heart is in it. But He's giving us a model, a manner, a way of praying so that we can structure our prayers accordingly. And The command is given by Jesus Christ, who, remember, is the Messiah, who, remember, is God incarnate. So here's something pretty remarkable. God the Son is telling us how to communicate with God the Father. That Jesus, who was in continual prayer with his father, who would slip away in the early hours and pray, who at various times would pray through the night, this one who was eternally in intimate communication with his father until that moment on our behalf when that relationship was ruptured, when he became sin on our behalf. This is one who has been communicating with God for eternity. and He now tells us how to communicate with the father. And the command is given to his disciples. And so these are those who have repented of their sins, admitted their destitution of being righteous in and of ourselves, have embraced Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, and become followers of Christ. So we are going to be given a very privileged way of addressing God as Father. But that's not, a, it's not true for everyone, but only those who have become His children. So the Bible says that those who receive Christ become children of God. And this invitation is open to any and anyone who would simply admit that they are sinners who need a Savior, who embrace Jesus Christ as that Savior, and in that moment, they are born from above. They become a new creation in Christ. They are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, and now they can pray this prayer as our Father. Now, most Jews at this time tended to lean more lofty in the ways that they address God. So when you look at other Jewish prayers in the first century, they would address God as King of the universe, Sovereign Lord, and Lord of hosts. And he's all these things. But when Jesus came, there was something intimate about the way he addressed God. His most common way is simply as father or as my father. And now as those who have come to the father through the son, we are invited to say our father. It's an address of intimacy, of a filial relationship that we're able to enjoy. And this should encourage us to come to God freely and boldly, knowing that he's eager to receive us and his answer us. So some of you in the workplace, maybe people address you as boss, prof, coach, and you'll listen to those requests. But when a little voice says, dad, father, pop, now it's a whole different level. So my brother and I grew up in a family business. And when we would call to talk to our father, when we would say, is dad available? Well, the secretary recognized our voice and our calls always went through. And so likewise, when we're able to address God as father, he's eager to attend to our prayers. But then we're reminded in the next breath that he is a father who is in heaven. That even though that we approach his throne of grace with boldness, we do so also with reverence. Uh, He's father, not pops. He's our Lord, not our buddy. And that's not to say there's not an intimacy, a filial relationship, but that there's a respect, an honor, a reverence that we need to be mindful of. But also the encouragement that when we on earth are lost in the midst of all the pain and the suffering and the trials, this isn't all there is. That there is a heaven. And right now there is a God in heaven who is sovereign over everything that happens on earth. And at any moment, our Lord, the King of heaven, We are able to address His Father and now to bring Him to intervene in our needs and to intercede in our various trials and to grant us the grace we need because we pray to Him, our Father who is in heaven. And then don't miss the word our. We typically pray this alone in our prayers, but this was taught to the group of the disciples sitting around Jesus. And the implication is is that we will pray this together and that we will pray this for one another. This was Jesus teaching to his disciples, for his disciples to pray together and to pray for one another. And so when we pray this prayer, we need to be mindful of our brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church family, in other churches in the community, in Christians around the globe. And we should be encouraged that they're praying for us also. Since this was taught on this mountaintop above Capernaum in somewhere around 30 AD, This prayer has not ceased to have been prayed daily for over 2,000 years. And there's something meaningful and poignant about entering into the prayers of the saints, of those who have gone before, who are those that are with us still, and that those will continue to pray this prayer until our Lord returns for us. So having given us the command to pray and told us how to address God when we come in prayer, He now gives us the first three requests. Now there's going to be two main parts of this prayer. Six requests broken up into two parts. The first three have to do with God and the next three have to do with us. And the reason that Jesus has us begins with God is so that we reorient ourselves. So when you wake up every morning, the natural inclination of your bodies is earthward. We are always being pulled every moment down towards the earth because that's the way gravity works on us. And it takes a matter of intentional energy and intent in order to stand up, to rise, to walk, to jump, to walk, to crawl, to do anything other than go down, down, down. Well, spiritually, there is a gravity that keeps pulling us selfward. So that if we don't put God first intentionally, our natural inclination is to seek the glory of our name, to seek to extend our kingdom and to seek to enforce our will on others. And so Jesus is kind to let us start with God, to let us recalibrate, to let us refocus to let us recenter, to reorient, to say, this is the true north. This is the north star. It's going to begin with God. And the first request that we pray is that his name be hallowed. Now, hallowed is a word that can mean holy or holy one. It can be used as an adjective, as a noun, or it can be used as a verb to make holy or to treat as holy. We normally see this word on Halloween because October 31st, is the eve the day before november 1st which is all saints day which in the church calendar is when you honor all the saints so all hallows day november 1st is preceded by all hallows eve which is why we call it halloween now you know but this idea of hallowing god's name means to treat him as holy we don't make him holy god in and of himself is holy he is morally perfect, He is morally pure. He is excellent in every way. But the problem is we don't recognize that. We don't acknowledge that. And so we pray that God's name be revered as holy. The same verb is used in 1 Peter 3:15, where it says, "Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Hallow Christ as Lord in your hearts." Treat him as the Lord of your life, of your thoughts, of your emotions, of your affections, of your desires, of everything you do. And we have to keep telling ourselves to do this because otherwise we're the Lord of our hearts. Or we put some idol there instead. And so our first prayer is that God be given his due. That God be honored. That God be revered. That God be celebrated. That God be acknowledged as God. With the psalmist we pray, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your glory, because of of your strength, is Psalm 115. The psalter ends with, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty expanse, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness. We're given a glimpse of what this looks like in Revelation 5, where it says, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So when we pray this prayer, we're praying that God be acknowledged as the greatest being in all the universe. And we want him praised for what are called his natural perfections. That God is all-powerful and all-knowing. And He's transcendent. He exists outside of this universe. And He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, all at once presence. We want God to be honored because there's no more honorable being in His person. That He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He exists eternally. He exists in complete perfections. And He is self-existent. He's dependent on no one else. And we want God to be adored because there's no more lovely or loving being in the universe than our God. There's no one whose mercy and grace and compassionate and love and kindness and tenderness and patience and long suffering and fidelity and faithfulness. God is simply the most glorious and wonderful being in all the universe in every category we can imagine. And we want to recognize this. And so we want everyone in the world to recognize this. And so this is why we're invested in missions. Uh, John Piper says that missions exist because worship doesn't exist. And that's why we're sending a team down to Columbia this summer is to knock on doors and to tell them about a God that loves them so much that He sent His Son to become a man and to die on a cross for their sins and to rise from the grave, and if they will just simply repent of their sins and accept Him as Savior, that they will become a new creation in Christ. So we're always going to be involved in missions. Uh, There's a lady I met this morning going to Romania, and they're going to go to Romania and tell the people in Romania about this excellent, glorious, wonderful God who made them and sent His Son that they can have a relationship with Him. We want God to be honored with our nation. And so we're informed and involved citizens. So there's gonna be early elections starting tomorrow and we're going to know who to vote for and we're gonna go and vote because who we vote for matters. Uh, this time next Sunday, Dina Recreation Center is gonna be open for early voting. So you can leave church, walk across the parking lot and vote. So be informed, <coughs> be engaged, be involved. We want God to be honored in our communities. And that's why we want our light to shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So on May 3rd, we're going to be helping sponsor a Borman fifth grade track meet. And then they're going to be at the UNT track at four o'clock on May 3rd, 17 fifth graders running in shirts showing little running astronauts because Frank Borman was an astronaut. And then we're gonna try to host a celebration event for the runners and their parents and for us to come and be involved in because we want to be a blessing to our community that they can come to know our God. We want God to be glorified in our homes, which is why we as parents try to teach our kids how to have devotions and that we have family devotions with them. In our marriages, in our church here at Denia, we want God above all else to be glorified That's why we don't have instrumental and vocalist solos because we just want God to get all the glory. We don't want any person, any program, any facility, anything other than God to be honored when we gather because we're praying, God, your name be hallowed. A little song that I was taught as a, I don't remember what stage of Sunday school, but I still sing that helps me with this a little bit. Uh, In my life, Lord, be glorified, be. I need some help or you're gonna have to listen to me. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. And then just start filling in the blank. In my home, Lord. In my marriage, Lord. In my mind, Lord. In my heart, Lord. In my tongue, Lord. In my school, in my work, in every aspect of our being, be glorified. Be glorified today. We could just sing this prayer in every aspect of our life to remind ourselves that the primary request we're told to pray is that God be glorified. Because that's what we were created to do. That as the Westminster Catechism puts it, man exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as John Piper put the spin on it, we exist to glorify God by enjoying Him forever because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So when we're praying this prayer, we're praying something that would be the fulfillment and the fruitfulness and the thriving and the flourishing of everyone on the planet. None of us are going to truly have the life that God intends for us until we put him first. And so we start praying, God, you be first in every aspect of our being, in every role in our life, in every part of this creation, be glorified. Secondly, we pray that God's kingdom Come. God's kingdom is the realization of his sovereignty. So God exists as the sovereign of the universe. He is the creator of all, he is Lord of all, he is the King of heaven. There is never a moment that God is not sovereign. Or as Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not one inch in the universe that does not say, that God does not say mine. I mean, he is in charge of everything. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when the serpent deceived Eve and Adam rejected God, we were evicted from Eden and God gave temporary control of this earth to the devil. That's why he is called the ruler of this world, John 12:31 and 16:11. He is called the god of this world that blinds the unbeliever's eyes, 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, First 4. John 5:15 5:19 says, "We know that we are of God, we believers." But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the reason that there is evil and wickedness, the reason that there is immorality and injustice, the reason that there is idolatry and perversion, pollution and corruption, everything that's wrong in the world is because God has not yet established his kingdom on this earth. But he will. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king was at hand. And when the king returns he will establish god's kingdom and wickedness will be judged and justice will flow down like rain and then men will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and then there will only be justice and righteousness and peace prevailing forever and that's what we long for that's where our hope is it's not in elections it's not in the balance of a supreme court it's not in an uptick in the economy it's not in the lowering of interest rates. It's not in changes in the education curriculum. There is nothing on earth that's going to fix this earth other than Jesus coming back and claiming it. And so we pray, God, come quickly. Come quickly. In fact, that's what the word maranatha means. Maranatha, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Come. Come quickly. The second to last verse in our Bible says, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the last verse gives us hope until that day. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So the grace of the Lord Jesus sustains us till the presence of the Lord Jesus delivers us. But our daily prayer is come. Come quickly. Come and set things right. Come and rule. Come and reign. Come and finally prevail. And then we get to enjoy all the blessings of the Beatitudes. Then those who mourn will be comforted. Then those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be fully satisfied. Then, best of all, the pure in heart will see God. We'll finally have pure hearts and we'll finally see God. And that's our hope. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we're reminding ourselves that our hope is not in this world. Not in any ruler, any leader, any economy, any advance in any area. It's not technology. It's not chat, cheat, chat, what is it? GBT. GBT. It's not in the latest advance in AI. It's not in becoming cyborgs or androids or anything else. Our hope is in Jesus Christ coming and ruling over the earth. And so we say, come, come quickly. We also pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the ways that we hallow God's name and extend and proclaim his kingdom is by obeying his will, that we honor God when we obey God. We make God known when we obey God in our marriages, and then people say, you and your wife still seem to love each other after 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Why is that? Well, we're no less (laughs) sinful than anybody else, but by God's grace, we're trying to do our marriage according to his word, his will, and when we falter and fail, we apologize and try again. And that's why our kids are sometimes a little bit better on a good day because we're trying to raise them God's way. In fact, when my wife and I were raising our children, we read a number of children's books that helped us in various ways. And one of them was called To Train Up a Child. And our main takeaway from this book was we are always training our children, intentionally or unintentionally. And unfortunately, we unintentionally train our children to often, until I use your first, middle, and last name, repeat it three times, raise my voice, threaten dire consequences, and then, well, I'm not expecting obedience until I go through that rigmarole. And we've just taught our children, mom's not serious, dad's not serious, until all these things. Why not rather just teach them, by obedience we mean instant, cheerful, and complete. Expect that, enforce that, and then everybody's happier. Well, in heaven, the angels always instantly completely and cheerfully obey God's will. That's what partly makes heaven heavenly because God's perfect and good and righteous will is always done perfectly. And we want that for earth. We want more and more in our lives and in our church and in our families and in our homes and in our communities. And as the circles go out, we want God's good and perfect and wise and righteous will to be instantly, cheerfully, and completely obeyed because that's the only way we're going to approximate the life that God intends for us. God's ways are righteous ways. Uh, The book of Proverbs says of wisdom, but it's really referring to God who is characterized by wisdom. All his ways are pleasant and all his paths are peace. God's ways are always best. God's will is always great. What God desires for you is always better than what we would desire on our own apart from God. And so we pray, God allow in again, in the world, in my country, in my state, in my city, in our school, in my home, in my own heart, mind, let me obey you, let me obey you. A little bit more quickly, a little bit more cheerfully, a little bit more completely. But to know, but to obey God's will, we have to know God's will. And so that's why we come and we gather on Sundays to study God's word together. And that's why we meet in sermon discussion groups during the week to say, how do I apply this to my life? What difference does this passage make on my marriage, on my parenting, on my work, every aspect of my life. That's why our little ones are next door learning about God's word because we want to teach God's will so that they can obey God's will. And then secondly, we have to voluntarily say, God, I want what you want rather than what I want. We have like our Lord to say, not what I will, but what you will. It's okay to say, Lord, I want this so long as we're always able to defer, but your will be done, not mine. And so every day we pray that. We acknowledge that we're unable to do this on our own. So every day we pray, your will be done. Now, only when we've oriented ourselves back to God, that what life is really about is his glory, his kingdom, his will, do we finally come to talking about our needs, both physical and spiritual. So look with me at verses 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Daily bread is popularized by devotions, by ministries, by all kinds of phrases. This is where the phrase comes from. Uh, I'm a big fan of a European or a British guitarist named Mark Knopfler and he has a song called Baloney Again and he says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, he leadeth me in shepherd's green, he gives me my day, my daily bread and gasoline. And that really captures the sense of what this is praying because bread represents everything we need to get by each day through the day. Bread, gasoline, rent money, money for medicine, energy to be patient with our children, grace to be patient at work, the ability to do everything that we need every day. We acknowledge that God is our provider. And so when we're praying, give us this day our daily bread, We're asking God, we're looking to Him as our Father to provide us everything we need for that day. We're acknowledging that we're destitute. We have nothing of ourselves. We can provide nothing for ourselves. Uh, Yesterday I I was blessed to have a little extended time in prayer. And I was just thinking about God being the source of absolutely everything. God is the source of the light that we're seeing through. God is the source of the air that we breathe. God is the source of the gravity that keeps us grounded. God is the source of the nutrients running through our body. Isn't it amazing that whatever you ate this morning, milk, cereal, toast, bacon, fruit, juice, fill in the blank, somehow we put it down the same esophagus that dropped into the same stomach and it sorts itself out into all the different vitamins and nutrients that we need. This is the protein to go here. These are the carbs to go here. I'm going to break this down. God did all that. And so every day we just look to him to say, God, right now, I need this. And we pray. And remember, we're praying our daily bread. And one of the primary ways that God meets our needs is through our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if one child has something and the other doesn't, the parent tells the child, share. And so we are concerned when I'm praying for my needs, I'm praying for your needs too, and vice versa. That if I know that someone needs work, I pray for your job because I'm glad to have one right now, but there were times that I didn't and I need people praying for me. And if the Lord would move your heart to go and bless someone with finances, a meal, medicine, a word of encouragement, anything they need that day to get through that day, hope for their heart, truth for their mind, whatever they need, this is the first context that we work to meet it together. And so we come to God and say, God, give us our bread. And we pray for our needs and not our greeds. We acknowledge, God, with the word bread, that my needs are relatively simple. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, We have brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction." The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's why I think Jesus has us pray for our daily bread. Because we would rather have enough bread for the lifetime, right? You know, really, Lord, what I would like is a full pension starting at 55. Really what I would love is a million dollars in my IRA or my 401k. Really what I want is a reason not to pray daily for my daily bread but most of the world woke up this morning just to be happy if they could feed themselves this day. At the time of Christ, it was day by day. You worked for that day, the workers were paid for their wages that day, you bought food for that day, you fed your family that day, and guess what, the next day you woke up and you prayed the same prayer. And if there was drought, there was famine. And if there was blight, there was crop failure. And if there was disease, the cows didn't make it. Uh, My mom grew up on a cotton farm in West Texas, and she tells the story one time of right before harvest and unexpected late hail came and they stood underneath the porch and watched the hail beat down a year's worth of crops. And so the next day, grandpa went to the bank, tried to get a loan and try again next year. And that's a lot of the world. And so God has been so lavish with us that he doesn't just meet our needs, but he gives us, all of us face to choice this morning of what we would eat. All of us faced a choice this morning of what we would wear, which shower would we use, which car would we drive, which, oh my goodness, he is so lavish with us. And because the Lord has been generous with us, we should be generous with others. Because again, we are the means by which he answers this prayer. Oftentimes it doesn't just come down as manna, like in the Israelites, although God did that, but he did that to show himself to be a faithful provider day by day for every step along the way. And what happened if you tried to grab too much uh, manna for two days so that you could sleep in the next morning? It rotted. Except for what day? Except for the Sabbath. And God would let you get a double portion on the Sabbath to feed your family. And he who gathered too much didn't have too much. He who gathered too little didn't have too little. Likely because they were sharing with one another. I grabbed a bunch of manna this morning. You weren't feeling well. You couldn't go out. Have some of mine. But day by day, we look to God to provide what we need, and we look around us to say, who is lacking this day? And how can I help them? What can I do for them? How can we meet our needs together? Next, God meets our spiritual needs. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, our debts refer to our sins. We are indebted to God when we transgress His rule. Uh, We talk about a convicted criminal having paid his debt to society. It's the same similar concept. In Luke 11, the parallel passage to this, it says, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So every day we fall short of the glory of God. Every day we commit sins of commission where God said, Don't do this, and I did it anyway. Every day we commit sins of omission, where God said, do this, and I chose not to do that. Every day I fail to love the Lord with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I don't love all of my neighbors like myself. I don't always love all of my brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loved me. Every day we are less than perfect, but we are commanded to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So every day I need to come to God and say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. At the beginning of the day, we pray for grace to obey him. At the end of the day, we go to bed asking forgiveness for where we fell short. And we know that he's going to forgive us because he is a forgiving God and he is a kind God. John said, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing you can do any day that God won't forgive when you ask him. There's never a straw that breaks that camel's back. There's never one toke over the line. There's never one crime too many. There's never 70 times 7 and then we fall ourselves into, well, now now I've done it. Because what are we praying every time we pray this? Our Father. This is a family prayer. Just like there's nothing that our children could do that would make us disown or disinherit them, There's nothing that we can do that our Father would cast us aside, would disown us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We have been adopted into His family. We have been born again. Christ died on the cross for our sins, past, present, future, and they are all paid for. So this is not talking about penal justice by which we face a judge. This is something we live every day in our family where in a relationship we wrong each other. And when we wrong each other to get right in the relationship, we need to apologize and reconcile. So when your child is rebellious against you, you get angry with them, but then what does it need to do for that relationship to be restored? They apologize. I'm sorry, mommy. I'm sorry, dad. And you forgive them. If I sin against my wife, I've wronged my wife and I need to go and apologize, honey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I just, I was inconsiderate. Would you forgive me? Our children, when they hurt each other, they need to repent and reconcile. We are God's children. That's why we're saying our Father. So you're not losing your salvation and regaining it again day after day after day. How terrible would that be? We are saved. We are secure. But in a relationship, sin creates distance. And so we repent, we ask forgiveness, we make it right, and we go on. But because sin is relational, not just judicial, what do we also have to do? as we also have forgiven our debtors. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus had said, if you are standing at the altar with your sacrifice and there remember that your brother has something against you because you've wronged them, what are we supposed to do? Go and leave your sacrifice and be reconciled. This now is for the other party. Our brothers come to us. I thought you were supposed to be in Jerusalem. I was. I thought you were bringing a sacrifice. I was. But then I remembered I cheated you. I lied. I was hurtful. I shared something I shouldn't have shared. I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have did. Would you forgive me? And what's our obligation when someone comes to us? We forgive. We let go of that. Otherwise, there's a sin of unforgiveness in our heart that is keeping us from the relationship with we, which we want with our God. Jesus goes on to warn us in verses 14 and 15. It's the only prayer request that has an addendum. The only prayer request that has an additional command. Look at verse 14 and 15. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. He says the same thing in a parable in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving steward. This man owed an unpayable amount to his master. He begged for mercy. The master was merciful. Then this slave of his owned less amount. He was unforgiving. And the master took back his forgiveness, so to speak. Forgiven people are expected to forgive. Forgiven people are expected to forgive. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. What if you don't want to forgive? Have you been forgiven? Yes, then you must forgive. Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, So also should you when it's hard for us to forgive, we need to remind ourselves that we have been forgiven much. We need to remind ourselves the cost of that forgiveness. We have wronged God much more than anyone has wronged us. And God forgave us at the cost of his own son. Therefore, we are expected to forgive others. And so as we ask for forgiveness for ourselves, we say, is there anyone that I'm bitter against? vengeful against, hateful against. Lord, forgive me that sin too. Because otherwise that's going to intrude on our relationship with God. Finally, we pray for protection. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, these are two requests that are really saying the same thing. They're giving two sides of this. Temptation is a time of testing that if we fail it, causes us to sin. And who is the tempter that tries to lead us to sin against God? Well, it's the devil. And so every day we're to pray, Lord, do not let me be tempted beyond what I'm able to resist. Uh, Mark Twain said, I can resist anything but temptation. And none of us are good at resisting temptation. The devil successfully tempted Adam, Eve, Moses, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David. Peter, Jude, fill-in-the-blank, there is only one person who has successfully resisted the temptation of the devil. And that's who? Jesus. And Jesus, the one who conquered the devil because he resisted the temptation, what does he tell us to do in regards to temptation? Pray that we don't enter into it. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying the night before his his crucifixion, twice he says this in Luke 22, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He goes away and prays. The tears drop like, like, or sweat drops like blood. Then he goes back, and what does he find the apostles doing? Sleeping. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? And so he has to tell them again get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We're not to toy with temptation to see how long we can resist it, we're to flee it. It was foolish of Samson to keep putting his head in Delilah's lap. It was foolish of Eve to keep looking at the fruit. It was foolish of David to keep staring at Bathsheba. We are not called to resist temptation so much as to flee it when we encounter it and to every day pray what? Don't let me encounter it. Which has implications for the cable channels we subscribe to, what we listen to, and who we're around, and where we go on weekends, and what we do on business trips, we aren't good at resisting temptation. We pray every day, don't lead me into it. Because every day there's someone who is tirelessly trying to lead us into it. Now, some of your Bibles say deliver us from evil. This is actually uh, the evil one. So it has the definite article in the Greek. It's not just uh, paneroi. It's to Paneroy. It's the evil one. And this is a synonym for Satan. Matthew 13:19 says, "When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart." Matthew 13:38, "The field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares that were sown among the wheat are the sons of the evil one." John 17:15. I do not ask Lord, uh, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Ephesians 6, 16. Take up the shield of faith with which you were able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3:3. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. We are of God. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. There is a diabolical being who seeks your destruction. And every day he prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And godlier men and women than you and I have fallen to him. And so every day we pray for spiritual protection. God, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. The final phrase is in brackets in many of your Bibles where it has a little small uh, footnote number by it, because the final phrase, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is not in the earliest and the best manuscripts it's not unbiblical in content it's a paraphrase of first chronicles 29 10 to 12 it's just not in the bible in the manuscript of matthew does that make sense so it's not necessarily wrong to pray but it wasn't an original part of the prayer when jesus gave it because we know that god's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever from other places just not here so when we pray this prayer every day, there are a few things that we are reminding ourselves of. One is that God takes priority in all things. The primary purpose of our life is to honor and glorify God. The primary hope in our life is for His kingdom to come. and The primary obligation in a life and the primary thing that we do to enjoy a good and satisfying life is that He will be done. We have to start with God. Secondly, this prayer reminds us of our neediness. That we need our daily provision, we need daily pardon, we need daily protection, we are not as strong as we think we are. Uh, The Bible says, let he who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. We are not that big, we are not that mighty, and it only takes a small virus or a bacteria to remind us of that. Thirdly, it does remind us of God's glorious provision and ability to meet all of our needs. Where do we turn to when we need protection? God. Where do we turn to when we need pardon? God. Where do we turn to when we need provision? God. (laughs) Where do you turn to when you need anything? God. He is able and abundantly and super abundantly to provide all that we might ask and need and imagine. God is the great provider protector and he is the one who pardons us when we fall short. And then every time we pray this, we are reminding ourselves of our identity as God's children. Because every time we pray, we're saying, our father, I've been adopted into a family. I'm not a cosmic orphan. I may not have a good family around me now, but I have a heavenly father who loves me and who is coming for me. And every time we say our, we, us, I'm reminding ourselves, I'm part of a church family. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. I have spiritual siblings. I'm not, it was never intended that we walk this Christian life alone. It's not just you and Jesus. If you're in Jesus, you're in His body. If you know God, you're part of His household. The Spirit indwells you, you're part of God's temple. We go through this together. And so we pray this together. And we pray this for one another. And that's how we're going to conclude our message today. I'm going to pray through this model prayer in an expanded fashion as an example of what I think we were intended to do. And then I just ask that you pray along with me. So would you please pray with me? Our Father... Who is in heaven and father we do thank you that you are our heavenly father that you have adopted us into your family as sons and daughters we thank you that although we were your enemies that you have reconciled us through christ and you have put your spirit within us and now you have redeemed us and you have made us part of your household and lord we thank you that as this earth is so discouraging that whatever app we opened, whatever newspaper we read, whatever news channel we listened to, there was bad news and hard news. And everyone here has hard things that they're wrestling with. But this earth isn't all there is. There is a heaven. And you are the Lord of heaven. And the Lord of heaven is our Father. And so, our Father, we thank you that we were able to come to you as, our, as your children and to say these prayers. And Father, we pray that your name be hallowed. We pray that you be glorified. We pray that starting with us, that we would recognize you as the most wonderful being anywhere, that you are triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that you are self-existent, that you are the creator of all things, Lord, visible and invisible, angelic entities, things that we can see and touch. You are the maker and the Lord of all. We thank you that you are all knowing, all powerful, that you are present with us now, two or three gathered in your name. And if we go out separately alone, you are with us there also. Lo, you're with us always. We thank you that you are so merciful, so kind, so gracious, forgiving, so patient, so long suffering, so faithful, so true, so loving. So Lord, we pray that we would hallow your name and that others would do the same. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. We thank you that it is coming. That again, we're not left to our own devices. You didn't simply wind up the universe like a clock and it's winding down. And we just do the best we can with whatever education and economic system we can install and establish. Lord, we pray that your son would come soon and set all things right. That he would judge the wicked, overthrow the tyrants, end the devil's tyranny, heal the injured, bring peace and justice and righteousness forever and ever. So Lord, may he come quickly. Maranatha. And Lord, we pray that your will would be done. We pray that we would see your will for what it is, as what's best for us. That your will for our marriage is what's best for our marriage. Your will for our parenting is what's best for our parenting. Your will for our work, for our country, for our society, for our culture is always good and wise and best and right. So would you please help us to see it as such? Would you help us to eagerly study your word that we can know what your will is in all these different areas of our life? And then would you grant us the grace and enablement to be able to obey it and apply it. So Father, we do pray that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. And Father, we pray that you would give us this day our daily bread. If there are any any hungry or who have spare pantries, would you provide food for them? For those who are looking for work or for fuller employment, would you please give them jobs that would allow them to provide for their families? Lord, for those that need medicines or money to buy medicines, would you please provide for that or miraculously intervene and heal as only you can. Lord, there are family members that will be having medical procedures this week, and we pray your grace on the physician's hands and on everyone involved in those operations that they would do it with excellence and that you would grant full and fast recovery. There would be no complications with insurance. Father, for those who have need of patience, have need of forgiveness, have need of hope, have need of energy. Lord, of all the intangible things that we need every day, would you provide that? And Lord, if we would be the instrument of meeting another's need, would your spirit speak to us and would we be responsive that we might meet someone's need this day? And Father, we pray for pardon when we fail you. We ask your forgiveness that we are so ungrateful, so foolish. So selfish, so worldly, so fleshly, that every day, like a dog returning to its vomit, we return to our sin. Would you help us not to do that so frequently, so easily? Would our feet run less hastily to evil? And so, Father, forgive us and help us to forgive those who wrong us and help them forgive us when we wrong them. We thank you for Jesus Christ who died that we might be forgiven. And knowing the price that you paid to reconcile us, would you help us to forgive others? And Father, would you protect us from the evil one? He is tireless. He is brighter than we. He is more deceptive than we are able to see through. And Lord, if we in our own strength abide, our striving would be losing. But the right man is on our right side. And so we pray that you would give us the strength to resist him, to flee temptation. Would we pray daily that we not be led into it? And if we have strayed, would we be able to confess this to another? And if someone has strayed, would we be able to go and give them encouragement? Would we rally and support one another rather than fighting the fight alone? And we thank you for our Lord who taught us this prayer that every day reminds us that you are the one who provides all we need, who pardons us when we fail, who protects us from every evil. And Lord, you are the most important thing in this universe. So as we leave this day, Would you help us to hallow your name, not ours, to extend your kingdom, not ours, and to perform your will, not ours? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.